0: Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Fanny Law speaks with Professor Shlomit Yanitsky-Ravid, a visiting professor at Fordham Law and an expert on artificial intelligence and intellectual property law. Professor Ravid is the head of the Fordham Center on Law and Information Policy AI-IP Project, researching the impact of advanced technology such as artificial intelligence and blockchain. She and Fanny talk about her work with AI-created content and its application to current copyright law. They also discuss the implementation of new models to resolve the challenges that AI presents for intellectual property law. Enjoy!
1: This is Fanny Law, and I'm a staff correspondent with Fordham IPLJ. Today, I'm here with Professor Shlomi Yaniski-Ravid to talk about artificial intelligence and its role in intellectual property law. Professor Ravid is a visiting professor at Fordham Law, where she teaches the course Beyond Intellectual Property, Theoretical, Comparative, and International Perspectives, and Intellectual Property and Advanced Technology, Artificial Intelligence, and Blockchain. She focuses on intellectual property law, including advanced technology, cyberspace, privacy and competition laws, as well as labor and employment law. She recently published a few articles about AI and IP and is the head of the Fordham CLIP AI-IP project. Professor Reed, thanks for joining us today. Can you talk about your background and how you became involved with AI and IP?
2: Hi, uh, thank you for having me. I'm really a privilege and I appreciate the opportunity to share some, some of my recent work, which I was doing for the last three years and hopefully will publish the book. About uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and intellectual property soon. So, thank you. So, actually, I, I mean, my first degrees were in life science and psychology, and then I switched to law school where i done my PhD about IP at workplaces. And I became an IP professor, but since I've done this research for my um, Postdoc period at Yale School at the ISP and until now I'm holding this research fellowship. So I switched toward advanced technology and I found it fascinating. I think my background helps me understanding that better than people who are just involved in the law fields. But the, and and I think I can even better explain it to people who don't really understand how AI works, and it's part of the idea is to understand how these systems work before we start thinking about regulating and regulation and legislation and other legal uh, tools to handle AI systems.
1: Well, that was great. I'd love to jump right in and get started. So my first question for you is, how will advancements in AI affect the law?
2: All right, so I think all these uh, new advancements, which evolve rapidly, really impose a huge challenge to IP, which I mean, in general, either to copyright laws or to patent laws. And when we face this 3A era, which I call uh, the era we are living in of advanced, so automated and autonomous, so AI systems start creating, work so forward, and start inventing. And that means that we have to rethink about copyright laws and and about patent laws. So there are some options. One option is that we have to start redefining and find new interpretation to terms that were originally made or directed uh, humans instead of machine. So we can, for example, change the word, or rethink about the word, about the term originality in a way that it would include also works of art that being generated by artificial intelligence system. That's we combine this idea in one article we publish about copyrightability of artworks produced by creative robots driven by AI systems. So that's one option. Like try to think about what uh, terms and condition and what definitions within the copyright laws or the patent laws that prevent creative works of machine being recognized as copyrightable or patentable. That's one thing. The other option is to create the whole different system which will operate and target works of art or inventions that are made by a artificial intelligence system. And one of these suggestions we, uh, we wrote about in the article the title generating Rembrandt and that target a new model that see the user as the responsible but not so much from an IP, intellectual property perspective but seeing it in a different, I mean we are using the terms uh, work made for hire just to reflect the idea that the user would be the owner and uh, the one accountable in, in certain circumstances and that's another solution. A third uh, solution would be just to say, you know, all these uh, IP laws, they are outdated, they are unprepared to cope with the uh, artificial intelligence systems, uh, they are irrelevant, and we should, in a certain point, forget about that. And when we think about it even deeper, so all these incentives, and, like, think about the uh, theoretical justifications for uh, intellectual property. So let's take law and economics, and the incentivize tool. So who whom should we incentive when the artificial intelligence, which is autonomous and creative and evolving, start creating works of art? I mean, it's just like we have to turn on the bottom or plug it in into the electricity. So all these incentive theory and law and economics uh, lose a lot of his uh, meaning. That's one thing. If you think about personality, which is more uh, a theory which is more dominant in, in Europe in uh, supporting AI system, and sorry, I, integral property system. So, we, we, whom, whom personality we're speaking about. I mean, the personality of the robot. And labor law, which is the third major justification for uh, IP laws, also loses a lot of its meaning. So maybe just outdated. And it might be that we'll have two parallel systems. One will focus on copyright that are still being made by human, created by human authors, and one that's being made by uh, machines or artificial intelligence systems. So that's also one of the options.
1: So what are features of AI systems that make them human-like?
2: All right, in our Works, the articles we were, we've been publishing in the book that would hopefully soon come out, uh, we identified 10 features, which in a way they overlap, but I think each feature emphasizes a different description of why AI systems are human like. One is that they are creative because they don't copy anything, and we'll give some examples soon. The other thing is that they are autonomous because they can create and recreate and recreate by themselves. It's not like they are like the old traditional softwares where they just obey some digital command, but they're really autonomous in, in many meaning. The third thing is that they are new and unpredictable. Like the software engineers who uh, worked on the software itself, it can't predict the outcome. The fourth is that it's goal-oriented. Uh, the fifth is that it's rational. It can choose between different choices and can target its performance according to the uh, to the choice. It keeps on evolving. If I if I describe that in the best way, I would say that the process of programming is going on forever because once the software got a new data, so it recalculates and reformulates the whole formula that is, it's is based on, and then it keeps on evolving. The other thing is that it, it is capable of data collection, it has free choice to choose between alternatives, it's communicative, that means that he can autonomously go into the Internet and get new and new data, and it's very efficient. Like when you compare it to uh, humans... So uh, the accuracy of prediction or the, the, the efficiency of uh, production, if you think about work so far that it can yeah, produce, the AI systems can produce uh, many of them in, in, in seconds, maybe millions of, of works in a very short time, or the same for invent, inventions. So I think it makes them human-like. But I think we cannot understand all these features because people are very, very suspicious. They're suspicious of the fact that it really happens, that the authors and inventors, the human-like authors and inventors, the systems are really here already in the present. And people rather think about, about that as something that belongs to science fiction or, or unclear uh, future. But they're already here, so that's one thing that we will try to explain later on. The other thing is, is the question, how does it work? So maybe later on we'll, we'll speak about how does it really work from engineering point of view.
1: Going back to the law, can non-humans create copyrightable works? And can these works ever be considered original?
2: All right, so that's a very, very uh, important question because step number one, when we start discussing about AI system, generate works of art, we have to understand that it's already here. And I want to give some examples because we have them in all IP regimes. Like we have newspaper being produced by a system, I think Google News, are being produced by AI system to collect uh, data from many other sites, uh, internet sites. Uh, we have storytelling. Like you, you have this AI system, you put some topics and one click and you have a new story. And, and it's new and creative. It's not a copying, it doesn't copy any other story that exists. We have songs, we have trailers, the IBM uh, trailer for a movie which was published. We have uh, paintings. Like, I want to focus on paintings. Like, there is a, um, I don't know if, should I call him an an artist, but there was an exhibition of Tervor Paglen in Chelsea where all the paintings were made by artificial intelligence system. But not just the painting itself were made, and you can see it here, all the painting, uh, but, like, one system (laughs) was producing the painting itself, and the other one, which was also an AI system, was the one who give feedback. Is it right, is it wrong, is it nice, is it recognizable? So then you go to a museum and you see paintings that used to be done by, uh, I don't know, by painters, by human painters, that is done only by artificial intelligence system. So, and that brings a lot of questions of ownership and accountability that we'll address later on. The other thing is that I, I thought it's not enough just to see other people works and to see, like we have the, the example for painting for E. David, which is also a very sophisticated machine created by a German university where the robot or the system itself paint painting, creates new paintings, but it doesn't copy anything. It just has a camera that takes photos from the outside and transfer it into uh, new paintings. But it wasn't enough because I felt as, as a legal scholar that I cannot really uh, express my opinion or write about legal issues without understanding the engineering part of the AI system. So, uh, working in, at the AI and IP project here at uh, Fordham with the, with the CLIP, so we have the whole project. And what we did is we also took some engineering advice, and me personally, with other startups I'm working with, I, I, I become involved in a course that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that teach how to program this uh, AI system. And one of the exercises were to we created a, a small lab with uh, an engineer that deals with uh, AI systems and uh, one computer, and we had to compose uh, songs. So I want to, I want to play one uh, jazz rhythm that we actually compose. And I think it's, it's very important to understand how, how it goes. So first we listen to that, and then I'll explain how, how, actually, how we actually did that. So in order to understand how it works, I think there are some basic. First, we need a, a software, which is very, it, it, it is accessible now in the Internet. We can download it for website. And what's the big deal about this system, I mean, there are many types of system, but I'm dealing, I'm focusing on, uh, on a system that do uh, recognition and, and can create works of art. So first we have to teach the system how to work. So the thing that this algorithm can do is be exposed to a massive amount of data and break it into tiny digital signals. So let's say we want to teach this algorithm to recognize a dog. So we give millions of pictures of dogs and it, I mean, the system doesn't see the dog as we see it, as uh, something that, you know, with, uh, without appearance. You just take these uh, pictures and cut it into digital signals. And what the algorithm actually does is to find patterns and similarities among these digital signals that he breaks from these uh, millions of pictures. So that's how we do facial recognition and all these things of object recognition that is really important for autonomous cars. So that's one point. So he has this formula of uh, what features should be there to identify dogs. So we can do it with songs, like I I expose the software to different rhythms of jazz, the same way as a compositor will listen to the radio and get all this music, and it cuts into uh, digital signals and find pattern similarities. And in this case, jazz was very interesting because if you go to classical music, so you can really follow a digit structure, but jazz is more like everyone invents his own music, but still it got, you can listen from the music and you can uh, hear that it got some uh, recognizable <laughs> type of jazz rhythm. So first it, it, and we can use it also for uh, medical uh, uh, treatment Like we, we expose uh, the, the software to many types of medical data and we tell them find similarities for getting some symptoms or predict some disease that would come or to cure some, uh, yeah, some illness and, and so on and so forth. Then uh, after exposing it, which also reflect the idea that the, the first player in the multiplayer model is the software programmer, but the second one, which is, I think, the most important one, is the uh, data provider. And the data provider is, is, uh, can be the same person, but it can be another person or entity, and it can be also, as we saw in, uh, in this painting of Turvan, it can be an AI system by its, uh, for itself. So the, the, the second phase is to give a feedback, like to provide with the data and to say, this is a dog, and this is not a dog, and suddenly we take, like, uh, as you can see here, <laughs> a, a photo of uh, a, a dog sitting on the leg of an elephant. So maybe it will take the elephant and reformulate the, the formula, the digital formula, and think that uh, it is an elephant. And then we said the trainer is very important, uh, has a v- very important role because he would say, no, it's not a, a, a it's a, do- it's not an, a dog, it's an elephant. So that's no. And then the system can distinguish between the the, the dog and the elephant. And then, so it keeps on uh, kind of like programming itself with more and more data. That's why it's never-ending story. Like w- within each piece of new data recalculate <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the patterns, and then uh, the results is reflected in very, very high predictable rates. So the accuracy can be really high because the more data it, it's exposed to, the more it knows. So what I did with this jazz music, so I took different read- rhythm, I mean, I wasn't doing it by myself, it did it in a small lab with an engineer, and we exposed it to rhythm, And then it didn't copy any of the rhythm uh, of the melody, just cut it into digital signals and find partner similarities and create the music. So, if we understand that, so we understand that uh, it's new, it it doesn't infringe anyone's per se, right? And uh, it's creative, it's autonomous, and it can be, and, and it's evolving. So, all these, uh, and it has rational choice and a target to create some uh, jazz music. Anyway, we did the same with uh, Rembrandt. I mean, a bit, but the one who created the new Rembrandt, which is also an amazing project. So they exposed the system into many, many, many paintings of uh, Rembrandt, and hundreds of years after the death of this wonderful painter, they found similarities. So they look at like the darkness, and you can see like the age of that person who is being painted, and it's m- mostly men, and the length between the eyes, and many other features. What is really important, and even dangerous in a way, is that the software programmer, they are not totally aware of these similarities that the AI system detects and finds. Uh, so we don't know what the similarity is. We just see, we just provide the data and get the result.
1: So you talked a little bit about how AI systems incorporate the data used by other parties, but do AI systems copy the works owned by third parties?
2: All right, so I think the answer would be no and yes. So first we'll start with the no. Because as I said, the AI system, I mean, the one we we work with and where there are more types of AI systems around, so they don't actually copy anything. As I said, you just find patterns and similarities and they, they can create new works of art with using these with pattern and they can improve themselves with any new piece of data that I, I i don't want to sound like i think it's all uh, it, it's the most wonderful invention and it it has only advantages and doesn't, i mean this invention i mean the AI system they have also a lot of drawbacks. but i think to answer your questions i think they don't really copy i mean the traditional softwares used to really copy and, and and there are still I don't know three 3D printings that can copy other people's works which are uh can be copyrightable and, and infringe third party rights. So that's the no, because it can be creative and yeah and create really a new and original uh work of art. The answer can be yes as well. Because this AI system should rely on a massive amount of data, and this data can be uh, copyrightable. So, if I expose this uh, software to this jazz music, so the jazz music that I exposed to, and I could take any other uh, type of songs, they are copyrightable. And if I take uh, painting and expose my AI system to to some uh, painting of famous painter that can be copyrightable. So there is an issue about using the data, and the, here comes the question, is would fair use doctrine be relevant or is it just like one of a million? I mean, can someone that, uh, I mean, say that the, the AI system use like a million pieces of data, and 10 of the, these million uh, would say, that we have copyright over our data and you cannot really use it. So take, can they stop the advanced technology or would it be considered as fair use? I'm more for the fair use doctrine than stopping the technology from yeah, being and, and and rapidly move forward.
1: So you mentioned fair use, and I know in your article you also talk about AI work, an AI work-made-for-hire model. So how can AI systems be held accountable when its works infringe on copyrighted material?
2: All right. So when we deal with data, we have a few problems that arise. And that's part of the articles we are, and the research we are conducting. So, before we'll speak about copyright, I mean, there is privacy issues. Think about medical data that are necessary for producing some drug or for, I don't know, detecting some symptoms. So, here comes the privacy issue, and and can we use this data? Can uh, I don't know? You know, people said, "Okay, we'll use this data." If someone give you waiver, so is really everyone giving waiver with uh, informed consent? and really understands uh, the meaning, or can someone say, "You know what? You cannot use this AI system because you use my data, and it to infringe my privacy." And also, privacy is a huge issue in Europe, but it's not uh, one of the main concerns here in the U.S. Just in some, like in of privacy of children or privacy in medical data, that can be an issue, but in other pieces of data, it's not a big deal. So that's one question we have to, to think. Uh, the other thing is that the, the data that artificial intelligence system needs in order to operate, which is a massive amount of data, and it brings many questions, it raises many questions, can be incomplete, can be fake, it can be biased, like if we'll, we'll expose the artificial intelligence, I don't know, even painter, the system that paints only to specific painting, uh, let's say only of male, so we'll get like gender biased uh, outcome. So that's really important that the data will be complete and, and legal and egalitarian and wouldn't be biased. And that kind of the, the copyrightable question. I mean... Uh, if I'm taking some pieces that are under the copyright protection, can they actually influence the outcome or stop? I mean, go to court and get an injunction against the AI system or its production. Uh, so I think here, as I say, that fair use doctrine should be applicable, yeah, and and I don't think. That, and one of the reason I think so because it's just it takes, like, tremendous amount of data in order to operate. So I don't think each tiny contribution of data, which is copyrightable, should stop the, the progress of science and useful art. <laughs> what right. about
1: AI creators? Should they be responsible for the works produced by their AI systems?
2: All right. So here, this is also a very, a very important question, and it addresses, I think, a major bias in the way that regulators think about AI. So once we understand AI systems and we understand it, it is more like, it has these features, make them like human-like producer or creators or authors. So we understand that the traditional approach, which is dominant in US and Europe in many other parts of the world, Looking after the man behind the machine, it's a bit outdated, and it reflects uh, a lack of understanding of how AI system really works and how independent and autonomous and creative and evolving they can be. And I want to bring one example, uh, like one of the examples everyone is delighted about is the UK Copyright Design and Patent Acts from 1988 that has uh, a specific section about uh, works, it, it, it deals with authorship of work, and it said that works which is, which are computer generated, uh, so in this kind of work, the author should be uh, taken to be the person by whom the arrangement necessary for the creation of the work were done. So, uh, I mean, they're still focused uh, and they're looking for the man behind the, the machine. And I, I think this is wrong because once you understand that the systems are really autonomous and creative, as I said. So you're missing the whole point. It reminds me of this chess uh, machine in the 18th century where a person was hidden under a table and moved the players and people came and think it's a miracle or some kind of machine that make the yeah, the, the, the chess plays itself. So when I... Ask myself, uh, who can it be? Who can be the owner and the one who is responsible for the operation? So we uh, developed the multiplayer model, and we tried to think about all the possibilities. So one of them is the software programmer, and we'll we'll get back to him. The other one is the trainer. It can be also the owner of the hardware, the robot or or the machine, or uh, the manufacturer, uh, which is a more practical approach. It can be the operator, the buyer, the user. It can be sole uh, ownership, or it can be co-authors, it can be co-authorship. And that's the humans or entities behind that. There are other options which I will address. So one thing I want to emphasize and to speak about is why the software programmer is not the right person. First, as I said... If we understand AI system, they are human-like, and that's why, by the nature, and that's why, I mean, the one who created the software is not responsible, is not the owner of the outcome of this creative and autonomous and advanced technology and advanced system. The second thing is that the producer or the manufacturer of a camera or piano or computer I mean, all these producers are not necessarily the owners of the copyright of the photo or, I don't know, the story uh, written by using these tools. So the software program, the AI system is a tool, is a tool that creates patterns of similarities, if we want to simplify the the process. But, it, I mean, even the, the, it, the outcome is unpredictable. And we can use the software for medical devices or to painting or to invention or to create music. So I I don't think there is a direct linkage between the programmer and the unknown and unpredictable outcome. The other thing is that I think the trainer and the data provider players have much more major contribution to the outcome than the software programmer. I mean they're all important but it's unfinished business. I mean like it's uh, it keeps on evolving as i said so the programming process is a never ending one. So why should the first one would be held accountable or would be because the the, the software itself keeps on changing and evolving. So we cannot really hold other things is the software programmers, they have the copyright over the software itself, but not on, I think, not on the outcome, which is totally different. And, and I don't think it, it should be considered even as a derivative work, because it's not like a song that's being translated into another language. It's two different works of art. One is the software and it has the copyright of the software, and one is the creation being made like the software. It's like one is the piano, and one is the rhythm being made by the piano. And also the theoretical justification, I think they don't justify giving the rights to the programmer. So now we come to the trainer, and maybe the trainer and the feedback for if you speak with startups that develop projects with their system, they would all say, because I'm working with them, uh, the, the trainer and the data provider is the most important figure. And I think data is really crucial. Uh, that's why I think firms should hold their data and there should be a regulation for the transparency of the data. But the trainer was really an important figure because the, he, I mean, uh, if I'll take this uh, AI system and expose it to jazz music, it will create jazz music as we, we heard. But uh, if I'll expose it to folk music or to classical music, so that the, the outcome will be totally different. But I don't think we can, uh, I mean, the trainer from copyright perspective can be the owner or the author because he's just a a provider. So I don't think he, he is entitled to be owners. So in one of the articles, we suggested the work made for hire doctrine. It means that, that the user is really the, the one that might be, that we need to incentivize him and might be the owner or the one who will hold uh, accountable. But I want to emphasize a uh, few more options. One option, is that many scholars think that the artificial intelligence or the robots themselves should be entitled, Should they should be the owners, and they should carry the rights and, and responsibility. And that's really, uh, it can sound really bizarre to many many of the audience. I mean, how can a robot be responsible? So in, in certain sp- places... Uh, I think Singapore they give citizenship to to robots or they consider and in in Europe they they consider uh, imposing tax payment on robots, uh, but when we when we start speaking about uh, copyright, so there is there are two main theories or main justifications to think about imposing I mean entitling copyright to, or patent rights to the AI <laughs> system or the robots themselves. One is the separate and independent legal personality of firms. So scholars brought this idea, like Ryan Abbott said, uh, he's a, a scholar from UK, and he said that uh, robots or artificial intelligence systems should be the inventor and own the, the patent rights over their invention. So if firm can be the owner of an invention, so why wouldn't it be this artificial intelligence, which is it's not human? I mean, firm is not human, so if, if we can impose even criminal offense and criminal liability uh, and tort liability and ownership of property and IP on firms, we can impose that on uh, AI system. The other things brings a very interesting uh, argument about personality theory. And Glenn Cohen from Harvard Law brought a very nice argument about that. And he said, "We, I mean, what, what does it mean that someone has personality? Let's say you are angry or you're, you're in love or, I don't know, you're very happy or sad. So one thing is to think about this as, a, as a, something spiritual, some emotions and some, I don't know, unknown mechanism that brought these emotions to the personality. Another perspective would be, which is more like AI oriented, would be that every emotion that we feel or express has some neurotical signals. So it's not, it's all about biological processes and maybe hormones and it's all measurable. So nothing like the mysterious of love or hate or anger. It's all some chemicals in our hand, And it's all like uh, electronic signals within the neurons. That So if we get this position, so we can understand that robots and a system, they can have personality. Because it's all about, the right electronic signal. So many people think that uh, AI systems should be the owners and being held uh, accountable. But I don't think it's practical solution. And therefore, I, I thought about this idea of work made for hire. Like, if we understand they're really human and we understand how it works, we don't say it's just a system, it's just a machine, we just press the button. If we really understand that these systems are human-like, so... Let's think about humans, creators. Let's say, let's think. I'm 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 an employer, and, and I hire you, and you're very creative, and you write wonderful stories. So who should uh, stories belong to? Who should have the copyright? So if, if I'm your employer, and we don't have any other contract, so I'm as the as the employer, I'm entitled to the right. So if we understand that, so we can understand why employers and users should be held accountable. Because this is really a human-like system that created work works of art, but I don't think it should carry the rights over its own production.
1: So, Professor V, you presented the multiplayer model in your research. What are some of the practical implications of implementing this model?
2: So, uh, on the one hand we spoke about multiplayer model, which uh, represent a lot of stakeholders. And all these stakeholders can be combined in one entity. So imagine Tesla, who also uh, uh, do the software programming, develop the AI system, and also they are the data providers, and, or they work with uh, other entities, other startups, or other firms. But they have, by contract, they have taken all the rights and, and keep all the rights. That's their policy. I mean, uh, as long as we heard that from them when we visited Tesla with the class. But on the other hand, uh, I think the, most, the more interesting case would be when these stakeholders would be separate entities that fight in court over their ownership and accountability. And uh, recently, there was, I think, one of these first cases which is written versus the Walt Disney Company, and it has to do with a few films, but I think one which is really interesting is The Beauty and the Beast. And everyone knows the mask that's been used in The Beauty and the Beast, and it was created by a firm, we call it uh, A, that used kind of like artificial intelligence systems because it exposed the system to many, many masks and it created new uh, masks that become really familiar. So it was more complicated because there was like another entity that helped like a different firm that was the data provider and there was also an employee who left the firm and... But at the end of the day, Disney got a permission to use this mask. And so Disney is the user. So we have firm A who has uh, copyright and even patents over this production of the the mask that was used in in this film debuting the beast. And then we have the data provider with another entity, firm B. And then we have Disney that used that mask within the, the film and the film become really uh successful and they earn a lot a lot of money and it's all written in the, in the in this case so here comes the question i mean who is the owner is it the software programmers who has all these bunch of patents over the over the software over the kind of ai system or is it the user, which is Disney? And Disney said, you know, we use the mask, we change it a, a little bit. Uh, we have these uh, actors that uh, play, so the whole meaning of the mask is being changed because we uh, we, we are the users, and we just we, we are not just like innocent users. We really we, we are very active users. So once we separate all the different stakeholders, now court has to decide who is the owner. And who is, I mean, should the uh, money from, from the beauty of the, of the mask being transferred to this uh, firm A who, who is actually have the rights over the AI system, like the software, or, I mean, is it separate? They have the, the, the rights over the AI system and not over the final product that been used by, um, by the user. So I think it really brings a, a very important and interesting uh, question, although it has to do also with license agreement and the shift from property into licensing and, and contract. But once we focus only on the multiplayer uh, model, I think or, uh, that was one of the suggestions in one of the articles that the user should uh, get the rights. So I think Disney uh, should, want, should win for the case and I'll give some arguments in favor of uh, Disney according to the AI work work made for hire model. First, we have to understand, as I already mentioned, that the AI system is human-like, it's creative, and the software programmer and the software itself doesn't have necessarily to do with with the end product, which is being used by the user. That's one. The second thing, I think if we want to incentivize the industry, I mean, here Disney deals with films, and, uh, but if we, th- if we think about uh, a drug company, also we, 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 we want to incentivize uh, the users and not just the uh, software programmers who already have incentive by having rights over the software, but not over the product. So the software belongs to the software programmer, but the product I think uh, should belong to the user. It's also subject to contract, but as I said, I'm focusing on the multiplayer model itself. And also, I think it unveiled the power behind the operation of AI system. And I think the one who enjoys the benefits of using the AI system should be accountable for the use they are doing with the, with the end products of the AI system might it be different in different circumstances where there is more linkage between the software programmer and the end product and the data provider. But I think because the way we should have seen it is that the AI system should hold the rights over the final products, and if we don't accept this idea, so I think a practical solution would be to impose the the rights and accountability over the user. Not necessarily in all circumstances, it depends on the contract, it depends on the linkage and the influence of the uh, different players. And I just want to mention uh, the Gunn and Heller um, theory that say that uh, ownership of of property means accountability and means uh, uh, responsibility. So the one who benefit The ownership or the product should also uh, bear, I think, the responsibility for its use. So in my case, I think Disney should win, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the solution for each and every case. And there are different fields of IP, and I think it's really interesting to see what the future will bring. People sometimes tell me, and just to to end this uh, wonderful conversation, which I really enjoy, is people ask me, so what would be the best? Because I'm I'm suggesting few solutions. If going back to the to the beginning of the conversation, maybe we'll just uh, redefine terms within copyright and patent law, or maybe we'll create a whole different regulation for AI systems, and maybe we do both. Uh, or we invalidate IP region. But I think the best answer in following uh, uh, an interview uh, with uh, Elon Musk would be the solution. I mean, if we could ask AI system, what's the best solution, I think we we would get the best answer for that. So I'm really thankful for this opportunity to share some of my works.
1: Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and this has been an extremely engaging conversation so thank you again for joining us today, Professor V. This was Fanny Law with Professor Shlomi yaniski ravi Thanks for tuning in.
0: The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hirschwitz. Our audio mixing this week is by Patrick Ho. Special thanks to staff correspondent Fanny Law and a huge thank you to Professor Shlomi Janitska-Ravid for being part of this week's episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ, or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn.